Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Mike Strautmanis, Executive Vice President for Public Engagement at the Obama Foundation. Prior to joining the foundation, Mike worked in the Obama White House, helping to run the Office of Public Engagement. During his time in the White House, Strout, as he is better known, was recognized as someone who understood the president and the agenda, but also understood politics, and most importantly, understood people. It's no surprise that the roles he played at the White House were related to representing the president to communities and organizations in order to listen, find common cause, and work together. In fact, Strout was described by President Obama himself as, quote, the person you call when you need help with a delicate situation. Before his time in the White House, Strout worked on Capitol Hill, both in the House and in the Senate. He worked at the Advocacy Group, Alliance for Justice. He spent time at USAID during the Clinton administration, and he has experience in the private sector as vice president for citizenship and strategic programs for the Walt Disney Company and early in his career at the law firm Sidley Austin. I am so excited to have Strout on the show today. He and I recorded this episode on Friday, December 10th. Mike Stromanis, welcome to Staffer. So good to be here. Uh, Yeah, Staffer. I like it. Uh, Nice name. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, It's wonderful to have you here. Um, As you may know, I like to talk with folks who have walked the walk in government and politics. And I like to start our conversations sort of at the beginning, finding out where they grew up and how they grew up and how they found their way into public service. Um, I, I've you know done my homework. I, I certainly and have known forever. You grew up in Chicago. I did not realize that you grew up both on the South side and on the North side, uh, which is sort of unique from, you know, when I talk to folks from Chicago, they typically say they're from one or the other. So tell me about growing up and, and what your mom and your family life was like. Sure. Well, look, I, I'm uh, I'm so happy that you're doing this, and and I think one of the cool things about this for me is, you know, I've left DC, and um, and in that way, it's hard for me to stay connected to uh, all the friends and colleagues and people that I worked with, and and so thank you um, for reaching out to me to do this. So I I uh, yeah, I, I'm a Chicago kid, uh, and uh, and I think that. Um, really growing up or, or having these experiences on both sides of the city really shaped my um, perspective and, and actually really kind of built a, a, a way of seeing the world um, that, you know, kind of put me in between two communities. I was sort of always found myself kind of in the breach, um, uh, which I guess made me somewhat of a translator, somewhat of a diplomat. Uh, when I was younger, especially, was definitely a bullshitter, um, and uh, and so, but mostly just trying to, because I wanted to be able to get along in in communities in which I didn't feel like I completely fit into. So let me just tell you how that unfolded for me. Um, so my my father and mother, um, my birth father Curtis Young. My mom, Sandra Bradley, they grew up two blocks away from each other, um, the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood called Chatham. And both sets of grandparents, um, you know, really worked. Uh, my my grandfather on my father's side was a waiter, a server, head waiter at, at one point at the Palmer House in the Walnut Room, kind of the fanciest room that was there. But, you know, he was a waiter and 
uh, at that time, uh, I'm sure dealt with uh, all I know dealt with all the degradation um, that, you know, black men had to deal with, uh, particularly during that time. And but saved enough money um, to buy a home and uh, in Chatham uh, and, and, and was really just came in at the uh, end of what um, people in Chicago called white flight which is these are neighborhoods that were basically settled by um, white middle-class families. Um, and as uh, black folks left the really tight part of the South side that they were forced to live in um, and started to move South um, folks through unsavory practices, unethical practices, and just fear uh, around racism left. And so my, my, my grandfather on my father's side and my grandparents uh, lived in a home. And then a couple blocks away, my grandfather, on my mother's side, who worked in the Chicago public schools as a janitor, a custodian. After starting, I did all kinds of jobs, including working in the stockyards. Um, but he saved enough money to buy a home. And so that's where they met. Uh, uh, fell in love, I guess, uh, enough to, you know, have me. But my father left, uh, my mother left our family before I was born. And uh, my mother was a school teacher and she fell in love with another school teacher who um, had a completely different story that brought him to Chicago. Uh, my, my dad, and that's how I distinguish between the two when I describe him to others, was a, a, a Latvian, first generation Latvian immigrant um, into Chicago. You know, Latvia is one of the Baltic countries and he came with his family as the, literally as the Iron Curtain descended across Europe, um, went to a displaced person's camp, moved to Indiana, sponsored to move to Indiana and then moved to Chicago and settled in in, a, in an immigrant neighborhood called Uptown. And so when I was um, around in my grade school years, um, moved to Uptown on the north side and really spent so much of my life, as I said, you know, moving in between these two communities. You know, I was never, just to be crude about it, I was never really, you know, steeped enough in Black culture to feel comfortable completely um, as I visited and spent time with my family on the South Side. And I was, you know, in a, in a very racially divided city, um, you know, Black kid, son of interracial parents, um, didn't feel completely comfortable fitting in on the North side. Um, so I just spent my time sort of in between both worlds. Well, it's just, uh, first of all, an incredible personal story, but also amazing as someone who has worked with you to learn about, you know, your, your time as a young person, how all those factors have contributed to skills that you are known for, you know, hmm. your, right. Your ability to work with people from all walks of life and your ability to listen, your ability to communicate. Um, but th those skills that I'm describing um, were also ones I have a feeling were recognized about you even as a young person. And I say that because I read the essay that you submitted to a book called West Wingers by uh. Gautam Raghavan. And something that, you know, adults were saying to you, even as a young person was this phrase, we want you to make something of yourself. Yes. Which is such an important phrase. And I want, I would like to hear you talk about that, if you would. Well, I, I think, and, and this is really what brought me into public service. You know, that phrase, I want you to make something of yourself, came out, and particularly out of 
family members and, and teachers and adults who I think saw, um, you're right, saw potential in me. I was a, I was a good student. I was a, I was a good test taker in particular. Uh, I had a lot to say in class and I had a lot of challenges. You know, I was um, a little lost, really angry, didn't quite know where to put it, um, didn't even quite know how to feel it. And so uh, I, it was a, I was a struggle as a kid um, to keep in school, to keep focused. Uh, and so it was this thing that I heard a lot, um, to motivate me and, 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 and how I took it in was, uh, I, I really absorbed the stories of the people who came before me and created the opportunity for me to do what I was doing. And, and, you know, it's only been interestingly enough, uh, very recently and, and, writing that essay at West Wingers was a part of it, that I started to recognize that in so many ways, um, part of my, um, my truth is that the stories of my Latvian immigrant family and my stories of my um, Black Afro-Caribbean family um, and what brought them to Chicago in some ways are quite different. Um, and in some ways, particularly from a set of values, uh, very similar. And, uh, and so those stories of people who made sacrifices, who took risks, um, who, who took out of their own lives and their own comfort um, and, and gave to me and, and my brother and sister and brothers and sister and, and uh, all those who grew up with me, um, I think brought with it a sense of responsibility that I think I sometimes ran from and, and also embraced. And, and so you know, politics, government, um, I really do see it as an act of public service. And I think I saw it as an opportunity for me to um, pay back and pay forward all that um, was given to me. And that that was part of my responsibility. Um, mm -hmm. as, a, as I think the phrase goes, that's my rent for walking around, uh, walking around on this earth. And so uh, in particular, when I was young, um, I, I really found myself often, as I say, in the breach and the divide in the place where, uh, that was contested. And I, and I, and I found that those places that were contested were contested because those were the places of opportunity. Mm. Right? Those are the places where you could get things done. Um, and it was that way in sports and it was that way in debate and it was that way in politics and it was that way on the streets and the, on the, in the, in the community. Um, and being the person who could um, pull people together, being the person who could um, speak to all sides or speak to multiple sides. You know, I, I, I you know, I don't want to be too high minded about it. Um, it gave me a little juice. Frankly, it kept me safe because uh, I was a big kid. But I, uh, uh, as anyone who knew me when I was a kid knows, I was not a fighter. <laughs> I had a good friend who had a phrase that said, Stratmanis doesn't want to hurt anybody. And he showed us want to get hurt. <laughs> and so, you know, keeping people laughing, making sure that as I went, you know, and walked down the street and was in the in a in a in an area in which there were people who, you know, might wanna pick at me, to have somebody say, Oh no, you know, I know that guy, he's cool, leave him alone. Um, and then to be able to, you know, be uh um, you know, in a very uh homogenous uh, black community, 
um, and have and know the signals and know the culture and have relationships and then being able to be, you know, the only black kid in a in a in a whole entire class um, and being able to get through all of that. Um, it was it was survival as much as it was opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, so so as you mentioned, you went uh, through high school. When it came time for college, you attended the University of Illinois as an undergraduate, and then you mm-hmm. also learned earned a law degree there. Um, I, I I assume that 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 the pursuit of law was both a reflection of things you found yourself good at. Right. Yeah. Uh, in, intellectually, memory, communication, et cetera, but also tapping into that sense of purpose. And your first job, uh, prestigious law firm, Sidley Austin, where you met a young attorney named Michelle Robinson, which uh, was, turned out to be an important um, introduction in your life. Mike, before you ever um, really got to know Barack Obama, my question, my first question for you is about the first lady and what kind of mentor was she to you? Well, we can end the podcast here. If people want to know the journey <laughs> to being a staffer, you just, you know, meet someone who uh, ends up being the first she, lady. She had a lot States of me- and, she had yeah, a lot of people who worked in that law firm with her. <laughs> they, they didn't all end up at the White House. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Listen, um, a couple things I'd say. One for those of you who are listening to this and want to think about uh, a career, I actually think that most of what I used uh, as a staffer in my career came from my time in theater. Oh. You know, I was a theater kid uh, in high school and all the plays, and I was actually a theater major when I first went to the University of Illinois. And I, I more than anything, theater, and the thing that I loved most about it, and I'm so um, gratifying that you mentioned this when you talked about me, was you have to be a good listener. Mm-hmm. You're sort of there, and you're 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 live. You're right there. Um, you know, there's no second chances. There's no, uh, and you have to roll with whatever happens. And uh, and so being a listener um, was so important. And also, as I wanted to express emotion and character, et cetera, I went and I listened to different people and different kinds of people, um, and tried to hear their tone and what's behind what they say and also what is in the, in, in what they say. So anyway, I, I just would offer that. Um, but to get to your question, um, you know, when I got to that firm, I was again, just such a fish out of water. I had talked myself into a job. I, I was a bike messenger the summer before who had delivered packages there, met the head of human resources and called her every month for 13 months. Um, because she made the mistake of never telling me no. Uh, and uh, and it was in the middle of the next summer that she gave me a job for two months, actually as a project assistant. I wasn't even a law clerk because um, I hadn't yet started law school. And that's when I met Michelle Robinson now, um, Mrs. Michelle Obama, the former first lady. And, and I would say that, you know, one of the things that's interesting about that is, you know, she saw me before I saw her, you know, I, I was a, you know, kid in an ill-fitting suit, um, working in a windowless office, um, where, uh, I would say, you know, she was one of a handful of black attorneys there. And I was probably the only, um, black person who was, you know, not either an attorney or working, you know, in one of the other jobs, uh, that one had at the law firm mailroom, 
secretary, et cetera. So she noticed me and introduced herself to me. And then I took the step of telling her that I was going to law school the next year and I wanted to learn what she did. And she, I'll never forget it. She invited me into her office. It was the coolest office I had ever seen, you know, sort of represented everything I wanted um, in life at that time. (laughs) And uh, she just turned over some papers that were on her desk. She was an intellectual property lawyer and she was working, reviewing a commercial for, I think, Keystone Beer. Do you remember the bitter I beer do. face? <laughs> yes. I, I will I literally do. never forget. And it was it was um, different uh, panels from that commercial. And she was reviewing it um, to make sure that they didn't get themselves in trouble with this ad. And uh, And I just was just amazed that you could do something that fun, that interesting, and that cool uh, as a lawyer. Um, and, and I think that that, you know, frankly has been, uh, the place where I've toggled back and forth and only recently have found a place where both sides of this come together, which was, you're right. I, I, I had studied and learned about civil rights law. When I talk about those who came before me, um, it was those lawyers who, um, the Thurgood Marshalls, um, you know, the, the, the lawyers that were behind the scenes, uh, at Howard Law School, at the NAACP, at Legal Defense Fund, et cetera. And, uh, and those were the heroes that I looked to in all those stories. And so part of me wanted to, you know, fight for justice. Part of me saw the inequities around me. You know, there were so many young people, even a cousin who's, you know, in my family, born three days before me, smart as I am, smarter than I am, but ended up you know, on a, on a different path. Uh, uh, and, and I just thought it was unfair. Um, all the systems and I didn't understand them at the time, but I knew that there were forces beyond his control that, that, um, as long as obviously mistakes we all make, but he was in a setting in which, you know, if you're on the South side and you make some mistakes and you're on the North side and you make some mistakes, the consequences are far different. Mm. And, uh, and so I had that justice thing but I also wanted, I also was creative and I wanted to have fun um, and I wanted to win <laughs> and I wanted to get paid <laughs> uh, because, you know, I didn't, I didn't come from a lot and I wanted a lot. Yeah. So it was really uh, uh, that young attorney, Michelle Robinson, who opened up that world to me and, and showed me that that was there for me. Yeah. Boy, there's so much uh, to react to there. Um, one of the things I like about that story is the the monthly phone call for 13 months. Mm. Because sometimes when I'm meeting with people who are young staffers or who want to be staffers, they have to keep at it for a while. And it feels so depressing to have yes. right all of those opportunities that you're shooting for, you know, not come about, not come to fruition. And what I try to say to them is just not giving up is actually progress. Because like every day that you don't give up, somebody else is quitting. So you are making progress and you may not see it, but just keep at it. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, you know, think about some of the most profound things that have been accomplished to the most sort of simple opportunities in our lives. You know, I, 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 I know we'll get to this, but you, you think about something like the repeal of don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. Um, which, 
you know, took a long time, relatively speaking. You know, if you think about the cycle of the way things move um, in Washington, D.C. these days, and particularly when I was first there, um, you know, we took a lot of abuse, uh, absorbed a lot of anger from our allies who were who were just furious that we didn't get that thing done immediately. And, uh, you know, you stay at it, you stay at it, you stay at it. And, 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 and part of the purpose of part of the strategy is literally to not give up. And I, and I think I would, you know, anytime I talk to a young person about getting a job, I tell them that usually um, in, in politics, government, you're not going to get the job uh, when you apply for it. The, the job that you're going to apply for uh, on the job board, um, that's not how you get a job. That's how you start to get a job. That's right. Um, when I wanted to move to Washington, D.C. and work in um, government, it was the, it was 98. It was uh, near the end of the Clinton administration. I had worked in politics and uh, I was really struggling uh, at the law firm I was at. I was clearly not happy and clearly not um, where I needed to be. And and so uh, someone told this thing called the Plum Book. And, and, you know, Jim, when you and I were getting started, it was a book and its color was plumped. <laughs> and right. so, and it had all of the jobs that one could get as a, uh, as a, as a appointee in the, uh, in the administration. And so you call the number of someone at whatever agency it was, and you, they sent you the Plum Book. And I'll never forget this. The woman who answered the phone that I talked to about this plum book told me literally, if you are calling me to get the jobs at the plum book, you are not going to get a job in the plum book. Wow. Yeah. Right. Cause mm -hmm. you had to know somebody. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, you know, that, and I, and it was true. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I ended up applying for a job. I applied to work for Deval Patrick in the civil rights division. Uh, of the Department of Justice, and 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 Deval, Governor Patrick was so kind that when he rejected me, he sent my his rejection letter and my resume to Bob Nash uh, at the Office of Presidential Personnel. Wow! And about three job opportunities later, I got my job working at USAID that sent me to D.C. and 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 launched my career in government. And yeah. uh, and so I would completely agree with you. You just you got to be a little desperate. You have to have that hint of desperation. You got to be stubborn. You have to believe in yourself more than others believe in you. And you also have to be able to listen to the guidance and advice uh, that people give you along the way. That's right. So you moved to, to Washington. You worked at USAID. You then moved to Capitol Hill. You worked as a legislative director on the House side. Yes. And, and in parallel to this, you maintained your relationship with uh, Michelle Robinson and Obama and got to know Barack Obama uh, as yeah. a friend. And his political career was happening sort of on a parallel track at that point. He was, tell, actually, just describe for me that relationship during that period of time. Yeah, well, one of the things I think I always believed is that, you know, power and influence in Washington comes out of expertise. It comes out of, you know, being winning and being part of the group that's in power. But it comes out of the states, right? We're in a federalist system. And so I always wanted to, it was 
smart. It made it fit who I was. I, I thought it was smart, uh, a smart approach. But I always wanted to maintain and enhance my ties to Chicago and the state of Illinois. Right. I, I always wanted to be plugged in. And then I, I, I believed that it would build over time. Mm. So I'd start small, start with one relationship. One relationship, as I worked it, would end up with three. Three would end up with nine. Nine would end up with 80. 80 would end up with a couple of hundred. And all of a sudden, if you want to get something done in Chicago and Illinois, I'm one of the people that you should come to. Right. Right. And that that would give me both authenticity in a place that is often lacking authenticity. It would give me a sense of place and people. Um, I did never want to become unrooted, unmoored. Um, I, I, I just saw people who didn't know why they were there, um, who got lost in, um, in, in the power of the moment. And then when the power of the moment shifted, they were sort of out on an iceberg <laughs> floating yeah. in the Potomac, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I also wanted to be able to feel a sense of efficacy that I was, I was actually accomplishing something um, for the people that I loved um, and the people that I identified with and the people that I cared about. And so I always stayed in touch with Chicago and, and, and you know, I always stayed in touch um, with Barack Obama in part because he became a mentor. As Mrs. Obama became a mentor, I would just say, you know, uh, uh, as you think about my story, um, didn't really have a father. I hope he never hears this because he's never going to let me forget, forget it. Um, so yeah, let's, let's send it to everybody else. We'll try to skip him. Um, but you know, I didn't have a father, uh, figure that was very stable. Um, I certainly didn't have a black father figure who I could really, uh, look up to. I was the oldest kid in my family and oldest kid in sort of my group of cousins. So I was the one that everyone always sort of looked up to and, and great, you know, I took that on and allowed me to beat up some of my younger cousins and take the, I don't know, the first piece of piece of pie or what have you at the, at the holiday. But, um, but I never had it like a big brother figure. And so really Barack became that. And, you know, when I would come home from law school um, in the summer, I would actually like just, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I would just like show up at his office, his law office, like is Barack Obama here around? He's like, no. <laughs> and I would just wait. I just sit in the lobby. So he would just, he'd come back from whatever he was. And I just would be sitting there and, you know, thank God he never told me like, what the, what the hell are you doing? Um, but you know, he would welcome me in. We'd, we'd talk, we'd catch up. And so, um, you know, he was a mentor uh, we got married, uh, my uh, my wife and I, and, and he and Michelle got married the same year. Um, and so they were, he was somebody who was where I wanted to to be in some uh, in some ways. And then what started to happen as I worked in Washington, D.C., um, we had much more, our, our relationship shifted, right? Because there were, there were things that I knew that, you know, I could talk to him about that he was interested in. Um, you know, just to be blunt about it, when he went to started running for the United States Senate, I raised, a, I did a fundraiser for him that shifted our relationship. I can tell you that. <laughs> He's like, oh, all right, straw <laughs> Um, But I, it didn't shift it too much. I'll tell you one funny story. So uh, he uh, calls me. He had, uh, I had helped him in his uh, failed congressional run race against Bobby Rush. 
By the way, my grandparents that I told you about, mm-hmm. that's Bobby Rush's district that ah. they were in. No one voted for Barack in my in my family. I was like <laughs> both a little stunned, a little crushed, and it was a huge lesson for me. I was like, okay, wait a minute. Uh, I actually remember my grandmother said, why does he want to take Bobby's job? Mm. Which is such an interesting insight mm-hmm. that I learned about constituencies, politics, politics. Uh, the power of incumbency, right? All of that. Yeah. So he called me and he said, you know, look, uh, 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 you know, I just want you to know I'm running, I'm thinking about running for the Senate. He, and I think he said, it looks, like it's, it looks like I'm running for the Senate. And I interrupted him. I said, man, I don't think it's a good idea. You know, mm-hmm. and I started, I'm like, you just lost to Bobby Rush. You know, I know Michelle's kind of pissed about this, uh, you know, and do you want to just jump right in? He and then he interrupted me and he said, you know, I wasn't really looking for your advice. Like, I'm, I'm actually running for the Senate. I just, I want to tell you, I'm coming to D.C. I need you to pick me up from the airport. <laughs> so, <laughs> so our relationship changed, but in, in some ways it stayed the same. Uh, uh, luckily, he has other people who can pick him up from the airport now. That's um, right. And uh, I have another role. Well, he, he ran, he won. He asked you to be his chief counsel. Um, Mm. And you had a broad issue portfolio in that role. But uh, something I want to ask you about is an assignment that that other staffers are sometimes uh, tasked with. And that is, how do you find an issue that is authentic to the member and Mm -hmm. meaningful to them, um, meaningful to their constituents back home, Mm -hmm. and yet is not so well-worn that there's no space in in the United States Senate or House or wherever you are, right, to make an impact. So you, as I understand, worked with a mutual friend of ours, Joshua Dubois, uh, Uh. and and came up with um, an issue that has been a thread through your life, as you've described, through the president's life, and through um, his public service, uh, Mm -hmm. his federal public service. And that issue is fatherhood. And eventually mm-hmm. that became My Brother's Keeper. That's mm-hmm. an initiative that rem- that keeps going today at the Obama Foundation. Can you talk a bit about that process and and how that how that uh, work continues today at the foundation? Of course. Well, first thing I'd just talk about is how I got the job of chief counsel because I kind of made it up. Um, when President Obama then Senator-elect, or probable Senator-elect Obama, um, was nearing uh, the end of the campaign. He came to Washington, D.C., and I took him to dinner. And as you can think about our relationship now, that was like a big deal for me. Sure. You know, when we went to dinner, I remember it was at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. Mm-hmm. So, and I like knew people as I was walking in and, you know, people at the table and I was introducing them to people. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm a big deal. And I'm, I'm, I got this idea. So I sat at dinner and I said, you know, and I pitched him to be his chief of staff. And I had worked on, I talked to friends, I talked to colleagues, I had this whole pitch. Now, what I didn't know at the time, he had already asked Pete Rouse, the, the 101st senator, yeah, right? The famed, to be exactly. his chief of staff. Yeah, famed exactly. staffer. So no, I wasn't everywhere. No. I wasn't even like, I was like, it was like, <laughs> wanted to be, you know, the head coach of a football team coming from like double A and someone's like, well, you know, we actually talked Dicka into coming back and being coach of the bears. <laughs> um, so uh, he was gentle with it. And he, he reminded me that I had never worked in the Senate before. 
He said, I don't think the senator and the chief of staff should have the same learning curve about the Senate. And I was like, that's a good point. So uh, I talked to people who knew Pete, and I was actually not going to work on it. I didn't really see uh, a role for myself. And uh, Pete is famously, uh, everybody knows this, he's an insular kind of insider person. Grumpy as hell and so sweet and kind and deeply committed to public service and deeply committed to the Senate as an institution. Yeah. Um, and he had someone on his job who was essentially the head of outreach, external affairs, um, someone on his team and Dashiell's office. And it was a big team, obviously, Dashiell's Senate majority leader. But I thought, OK, there's maybe something there. So I talked to Pete about it. And uh, and I recognized that there were a set of issues as I talked to both the incoming senator and the chief of staff that there were a set of issues that people kind of would want a Barack Obama to be focused in on. And, and I thought if I could take those on, it would give him space to be able to go deep and explore in areas that, you know, felt like needed, really needed his presence to carve out areas like healthcare or the veterans work that he did or foreign affairs. And so I took on Illinois constituency work and, judicial nominations and uh, business outreach and uh, constituency outreach and other areas that um, were where I was, I kind of, it's one of those skate where the puck, you think the puck is going type of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was white space there. And I think I'd say I went through the same process to, um, uh, you know, pose the opportunity to talk about fatherhood. So one, he'd given a speech um, on, on, on fatherhood, on father's day back home in a, in a very venerable, famous church called apostolic, um, church of God in, in, in Chicago. And I saw the way he worked on that speech. So one, I, I had one element, which was, this was something that the member cared about personally, deeply, mm-hmm. right. And they don't have to care about it deeply, but they do need to care about it because it has to be authentic. Um, uh, mostly because as you move forward on an issue, there are a host of decisions to be made. And if you can't get the member's attention because they don't care about it, you're not going to be able to be effective as a staffer. Really good point. Um, two, uh, I, I saw that there was a, because he was, remember, he was a junior senator. So he didn't have a lot of positional legislative power. And I saw that this was one that um, would require some influence of public policy um, some, you know, it wasn't a big legislative lift to get anything done on it. You could do small things and make an impact. Okay. That fits where he is in the Senate. That's number two. Number three, there wasn't anybody else in the team that wanted to work on it. And number four, it was an issue that cut across lines of difference, not just party lines. I think people often look at party lines, um, and think, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to be bipartisan. And I'd say these days in particular, being bipartisan doesn't really automatically get you very far because yeah. people will on all sides of the aisle will say that they're for something, but never vote for it or never put themselves out there. You want to be across lines of difference in our culture mm. um, and issues around fatherhood, you know, brought together a whole host of, of areas. And we worked hard to make sure that women's groups, advocates were there, children's advocates, Republicans, uh, Democrats. 
um, you know, progressives who are really interested in um, uh, impact uh, around social causes and families, conservatives who are really concerned about impact on families. And then I had Joshua Dubois, which was a passionate young staffer who was hungry for anything <laughs> that they could do. He was a legislative correspondent at the time. To give him an assignment meant that I was going to get a level of work product out of him. Really, seriously, yeah. that yeah, would impact what was going on. And yeah. so you got, you, you know, it was really, um, it lined up in that way. And that's one of the reasons we chose that issue. Yeah. Um, okay. I need to, to fast forward here. Um, okay. Let's so, jump. Um, when the, the president is elected uh, in 2008, he asks you to work in the Office of Public Engagement, uh, mm -hmm. first as chief of staff to Valerie Jarrett, and uh, ultimately you take on the title of, right? Well, Jim, before you go and look for the title, yes, I would just say okay. that was a classic Washington, D.C. Um, title promotion. Ah. Where nothing changed because <laughs> the same amount of work is still there. It was the now it's the same amount of work still there. It was the same work. <laughs> it was truly I I, I can reveal this now. Oh, it was funny. things were shifting. Now it did mean a little bit more money. Okay, that's good. Great. I went from being a special assistant to the deputy to a deputy assistant, so it yeah. did mean more money. But I was still Valerie's chief of staff. <laughs> So well, <laughs> don't that, worry about the that's title. beautiful. OK, thank you. Um, the you know, the nature of, of the work of that office is you are representing the president before every constituency group mm -hmm. that wants to talk to the White House. Um, and very often, you know, as we've talked about, it's listening, but it's finding common cause. Um, sometimes it's delivering hard news mm -hmm. or just taking right the input. Um, yes. One of the things I want uh, to ask you is a two-parter, you know, what is a meeting that stands out in your memory as the hardest? Mm. What's one that stands out in your memory as a joyous one? Mm. Well, we have plenty of hard ones. I will tell you that. Um, I think the one that was probably the most difficult was we um, had a meeting with a, a set of active uh, advocates for immigration reform mm. and um you know i i've been brought into that work uh alongside my my dear friend and colleague cecilia muñoz who's dedicated her professional life uh in so many ways to advocating for and and, and making progress uh, on that issue and you know it's interesting uh you know i sort of like to play the role of, you know, you if you kind of didn't need me there, there's sort of no reason to be there. I had plenty to do. I didn't need to be at every meeting. And so when Cecilia asked me to come and, and start to have this, this dialogue with these, um, with this cross section of advocates, I sort of was like, well, you know, why do you need me there? And it was interesting. She said, they expect Cecilia to be there. They would expect her to be there. But because of my relationship and because of my role, my presence would don't denote a level of seriousness um, uh, that the White House was taking on this issue. And so um, we we went, uh, I went, and and it was a series of meetings that really led up to um, obviously a proposal 
going and getting in front of Congress, but uh, before that, a meeting with the president. And at the time, you know, we'd had, uh, he had made tremendous progress on this issue. Um, and he had done things that those advocates were infuriated by, um, his enforcement approach, um, you know, and the like. And, and you know, his, 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 and so we, we sat in that meeting, we went to the meeting. The first thing I'd say is that one of the advocates, one of the younger ones refused to shake his hand. Mm. Um, did not even, it was, was like, didn't want to, I, I think it was hard work. I remember to even get him to come to the meeting. We wanted to make sure it was a meeting that had, you know, a cross section of perspectives. It was not there for happy talk. It was there to move forward for progress on those issues. So, you know, and, and we also, and I knew President Obama in particular um, resonates, he, young activist resonates with him. You know, that's who he was. And as you can tell with the work of the foundation right now, he's dedicated his post-presidency to um, building up young leaders. And so we wanted to have these young people in the room. And he, I mean, if you can imagine you're in the Roosevelt room, you know, president walks in, he's going around shaking hands and I could see the guy stiffen. Um, and I wondered what he was going to do. And he just sort of had think he had told himself he wasn't going to shake his hand. He didn't. And, and, you know, they had that awkward moment. And uh, it sort of bit went downhill from there. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, um, you know, it was uh, very passionate. People were very angry. And, you know, I had two things going on at the time. One, you know, I didn't want him to feel like we had set him up, right? We, I didn't want President Obama to feel like we had set him up, right? His time is precious. And, uh, and, you know, he's used to making progress when he's in the room. Uh, but I also know that he uh, understands that, you know, as he's often put it, if it's 51-49 or 60-40, it doesn't get to him. Somebody else makes those decisions. The only decisions that get to him are 50-50 um, when it's a very difficult, thorny thing. And so I also knew he had the capacity in the stomach to be able to deal with that. But it was hard sitting there as a staff person wondering whether or not you had made a mistake mm -hmm. in the way this had come across because it was not a meeting that led to a tremendous amount of progress. And I also felt bad for the, I felt for the advocates in the room because um, here was their opportunity to influence one of the most powerful people alive. And I would just say many of them took tremendous advantage of it. And many of them, in my view, were blowing it because they were too upset about what was going on to be able to articulate. And I'd been in meetings with them before, so I'd heard them articulate to be able to articulate the path forward or the question they wanted answered or the thing that they wanted him to know. Um, and, you know, as someone who puts meetings together, right, it was painful. <laughs> It was painful. And I also saw my friends at that point, you know, Cecilia and others get attacked personally in the room. Mm. And that was hard as well. So that was probably one of the more painful ones. Um, one of the best ones we did was uh, uh, on the anniversary of the March on Washington. We had um, individuals who had been in the march, who lived in Washington and had never been to the White House. Wow. We asked them to come. And we asked them to bring a young person in their lives with them. 
And, uh, you know, a couple of them were in wheelchairs. They were quite elderly. Um, you know, to it was an honor to have them step foot in the people's house, in their home, a place that, that most of them said they never thought of going to. They never thought they, you know, would be welcome. They could, they would ever be invited. To have them spend time, President Obama, Mrs. Obama came by. Um, they went and he showed them the, uh, the Oval Office, uh, the map that he had uh, from the March on Washington that was framed. Um, and they told stories and talked about the progress that had been made. And, 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 you know, at a time in which I spent most of my time thinking about and worrying about what hadn't been done and what needed to be done and how far away we were from, you know, accomplishing what we wanted to get done to spend time thinking about how far we've come and, and what our presence meant as a symbol of how far, a living symbol of how far we've come was uh, the best moment, one of the best moments of my life. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Um, that, uh, that does bring me to your work today and, yeah. and, and the work of the president, the first lady at the Obama foundation. Um, you mentioned training the next generation of leaders, which I know is a core purpose of the foundation. Talk to me about your style of leadership, what you learned yeah. from the president and first lady about leadership and what you're trying to um, inculcate the next generation with as, as they get set up to be leaders? Uh, I appreciate that question. Um, it's really important to me. So uh, I think here's what I've learned. And you know, one, I think you have to start with, I always try to start with um, a set of values. Um, even before I get to goals, what I'm trying to accomplish as a leader, mm. I want to know why I'm there. And I want to be able to articulate that from a values-based perspective. We're here to, you know, make life better for every child in this neighborhood. We're here to um, train the next generation of leaders because we believe that they um, are uh, a key to transforming society, right? Um, because I think that values can, um, are universal and that people can connect to them or not. And it gives them a good way to decide whether or not they want to follow you one's lead, follow my leadership and what mm -hmm. I want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Uh, then number two is I just do, as you could imagine, a ton of listening. And people always want to know when I first sit down with them, like, well, they always say, particularly when it's early, like, what do you want to get done? What do you want to accomplish? And I say, you know, I just want to listen find out what's going on, how things are going and what you want to accomplish, what's falling short, how things are going. And I'm like, okay, but tell me what you want to get done. And I'm like, I don't know what I want to get done yet. I need to talk to you about it. Yeah. And I think that, um, and you can't be blank slate, right? Mm -hmm. You got to, here are my values. Here's overall why I'm here building the presidential center. Uh, when I went to Disney, you know, doing a corporate social responsibility program. Uh, and a guy named Todd Park, who was the chief technology officer at the White House, taught me something that comes out of the startup world, entre entrepreneurial world, when you're trying to kind of develop a product. That listening has to be both science and art, right? You got to hear the different people that I want to listen to, hear the categories they fall. I got to make sure, you know, I get different voices, a diverse set of voices. But then the art comes in as you start. 
where where are people collecting? What what's what are you hearing that's in common? What is somebody saying? You know, oh, you should talk to that person. You know, okay, let me go there. I don't. They may not fall in the chart, but I'm going to go there. How do you decide? One of the things I love about the listening is I end up finding out who my my allies are going to be mm. in the project. I I unearth the person who's you know four layers down who knows more about what's going on than anybody else in the place (laughs) and really wants to get it fixed. I want that person on my team. So there's that. And then you set, you, you, you create a set of goals. And then I think the most fun part is uh, of, of leading for me is then you're kind of, you're like on the journey together. And I, I, I'm a movie buff. I love those Trek journey movies, you know, going up the river going out west, you know, going to going to kill Thanos, whatever it is. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love those Star Wars. I love those journey movies. And what I love about them is it shows me that you never end up in the destination you want to go the way you were when you started. Mm-hmm. You have to change throughout it. And I think in order to change, you have to empower your people and guide them along the way. And I guess the last thing I'd say is, you know, uh, uh, and I know this is cliche now, but I want I'm like, I see myself as very much a Ted Lasso leader. If I've got you in a position, I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to back you. If I can't, you're not going to be in that position anymore. Right. Right. It's either or. Yeah. If I can't back you and put you in a position where I'm empowering you to believe in yourself then you are in the wrong position. And if you are there, I'm with you literally all the way. Um, and, you know, until we achieve our goal or until you show me that you've grown out of that role or you're not in the right place. But that, and that's the most, that's the most fun part of the thing, right? That's, that's, that's where the journey becomes quite joyful. Um, and that's what I've learned. Well, something that I am looking forward to so much because I know it is going to happen is we are going to be uh, listening to, following, inspired by leaders, plural, who have come through the Obama Foundation in some matter of years, right? There are young people today who will be leading communities, states, the country um, in really important ways, and they will trace back their journey, their intellectual and spiritual uh, journey through the Obama Foundation. And I so look forward to that. Uh, Um, There's nothing better to be a part of than that, man. Yeah. So I I do have one more question for you related to your work. Yeah. I know your work today, that is, I know, um, having just done some reading, how significant the last few months have been for the Obama Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, And that the way you are all envisioning the... Uh, the presidential center, it is not just intended to have an impact on the people who come to it, but it is intended to have an impact on the entire city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about um, how you're utilizing the foundation itself as a tool of change? Sure. So first of all, I, I think that um, we're practicing it right now. We're living it, all right? We're building this center in a Black community that has been uh, disinvested in some would say, or certainly underinvested in for decades and coming with a major investment, power, 
prestige to a community that has never seen those things as, as they've never experienced those things as positive, right? It's always meant displacement, um, exploitation, uh, uh, at, at, or, or kind of worst and, and, you know, just implicit racism kind of at best. So, um, there's real excitement. There's real anticipation. There's, uh, high expectations there's fear and anger about the past and about some of the things we see in the present because you know we're not we're building a presidential center we're not feeding people we're not you know creating um you know millions of jobs right and so we have to navigate that but in navigating it what we're doing i think is we are we're empowering people Right. We're creating a sense that we can do this together, that we don't have to just sit in our divide, that we can get from, you know, an announcement to a design to a groundbreaking in a few years to a ribbon cutting. And then years later, hundreds of thousands of visitors coming to the south side of Chicago. Right. And and I think there's very little uh, there's precious little opportunity to do that these days, Um, particularly over something that's high profile. So I think one of the things I want to do with the center is, as we do this work, I want to I want to create a sense of progress and purpose and common ground through it, right? Taking real division, real opportunity, and working through it together. Yeah. I think the second thing I want to do is I want to change the image of Chicago to the world. I know that's pretty lofty, but I work for you know a former president, so I I think lofty is okay. And uh, and I also want to change the image of Chicago to itself. Right. If you look at a lot of maps of the city that you get, if you were to stay in a downtown hotel, those maps would end at about 31st ish of McCormick Place. Right. Because the city doesn't see itself as a whole in many ways. It's a collection of neighborhoods. Hmm. And what I want to do is have people understand and embrace, um, you know, the sense of one Chicago. And use the Obama Center, which we hope will be this kind of iconic symbol, tourist attraction, you know, somebody who we worked with overseas, a young leader we were training said, because he knew the Obamas were from Chicago, that that's the place hope lives. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're going to change the sense of what Chicago is to the world. But through that, I hope we also change the sense of what Chicago is to itself. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, as a kid who went and rode bikes along the lake, from the north side to the south side, who took the train all around the city to get to school, to get to parents, to see friends. Um, I've seen, I see it as one city. Um, I see what's common and true about all the different sides. And it is literally, truly the privilege of my lifetime, of a lifetime to build a cultural institution that brings that to life, that makes that real. Well, Mike, you've been so generous with your time. I could talk to you all day. The impact of your life, not just your current work, but your whole life is substantial and and meaningful. And I am so, so pleased um, that I was able to talk with you today and happy to hear about the war, that the work is very much going on, Uh, right? The beating heart of of the purpose uh, that that you've worked on for so many years uh, continues. And I want to thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. As, As President Obama said, that's what we do. 
I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thank you.